Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. I'm very pleased today to introduce Tessa Tennant. Tessa is a pioneer in green finance and a relentless innovator. She co-founded the UK's first green investment fund, as well as numerous other green finance organisations, including the UK Social Investment Forum and CDP, formerly the Carbon Disclosure Project. Tessa is now a non-executive director of the UK Green Investment Bank. Her latest initiative, NDCI Global, aims to connect professionals around the world working to finance and implement the National Climate Commitments, NDCs, underlying the recently ratified Paris Agreement. Thank you very much, Tessa, for taking the time today to speak to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My pleasure. My, and I'm delighted to be taking part in this. Yes, it's it's a great uh, uh, opportunity to to uh, talk to you and get a perspective on the development of the the, the world of green and sustainable uh, investment, in which you've been a pioneer. You've been involved, I know, for for several decades now. Um, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about uh, when did it all begin? <laughs> when did you get involved? And uh, tell us a little bit about you know your background and career. Okay, well. I mean, really, I think the thing that people will um, be familiar with is the uh, extraordinary response that there was to the apartheid um, crisis in um, South Africa and also Vietnam War, the the use of Agent Orange as a defoliant um, uh, in the warfare, which created such human health uh, issues and awful, awful um, pain and suffering. And um, those two things were, those two uh, events were really uh, important for driving this idea of ethical investing. Okay. So when I emerged out of uni, um, the idea of not investing in um, things like uh, Dow Chemicals, who were the manufacturers of Agent Orange, or not investing in companies that were active in South Africa and complicit with apartheid. That was very much in the currency of progressive conversation. And I guess where I came from was a different base of, while well, that was all well and good, the question in my mind was, well, what are we investing in? And because I'd read environmental sciences, I, I was very, very taken with the fact that, in fact, you know, investment and finance really had to get behind and drive sustainable economic development uh, as quickly as possible. Um, and, you know, having worked for... Um, NGOs, I was very familiar with how the corporate world, this is the mid 80s, how the corporate world viewed, you know, voluntary groups, environmental organisations. And I have to say, that was for the most part with quite a lot of disdain. And therefore, the thinking was, well, if, if one came as an investor, 
then you would be um, aligning the green agenda with money making, and you'd get a you know more ear time with it, with um, companies and encourage them to do the right thing. So that was like the real driving thinking behind being involved with launching the first green investment fund in the UK. Right. And that was back, as you say, in the late 1980s. How did it go? <laughs> it was amazing because we, we launched the fund in uh, 88, uh, the spring of 1988. And Mrs. Thatcher that summer came out with her very famous speech about um, uh, the ozone hole and stopping um, uh, the ozone hole, hole and then recognising that the issue of uh, global warming might be something very real. And she was proud of her chemistry roots. She graduated yes. from chemistry from Oxford University and therefore when the science was explained to her, she really, having always been found the environment very tedious, she really did an about turn and, and, and made this extraordinary speech. So basically, our fund was already launched and we rode this wave of environmental awareness, even the Daily Mail becoming a green champion in the UK. Um, and, you know, that was sort of pent-up frustration unleashed um, from the last, I don't know, six, eight, ten years. So we really did ride the most extraordinary wave. Great. Um, uh, very good timing. It <laughs> always helps. No, it was pure chance, I tell you. <laughs> and I think the other thing that then boosted the whole conversation was the following year, um, you know, the, the Berlin Wall coming down, and so this whole conversation about, well, you know, it's it's up to the markets now. Everyone's accepting, or you know, it seemed like the markets had won over the, you know, a totalitarian political model, and therefore that you know the markets had better get it right. And so that was another driver. Uh, and then you also had the Exxon Valdez disaster, the, the massive uh, oil pollution off the north coast of uh, North America. And, and again, that was a huge boost to um, the desire to do something about, um, you know, industry's environmental performance. Absolutely. Absolutely. And how were the 90s um, for the, the 90s were amazing. I mean, we were on a roll. And, you know, we were, you know, there was no precedent before we launched the fund. So we made some appalling mistakes at the beginning. We, we kind of took a view that, you know, as far as the energy allocation in the portfolio, there weren't that many renewable energy stocks at that time that were listed. And therefore, we said, right, well, we'll back gas, um, not fracking, that didn't really yes, exist yes. at that time, yeah. but we'll back gas over coal and oil. And so there were a whole lot of gas stocks in North America. And we took a huge punt on these. And it was the warmest winter that had been on record for quite a while. So no one turned on their central heating. So those, those stocks didn't do so well short term. But, you know, we were, we were really developing our, the, the kind of methodologies and the thinking about how to run these funds well. I'm sorry about that.
Don't worry. Don't worry. Bill's answered it, so we're okay. <laughs> Very good. Um, yes. Uh, I'll take it off so it doesn't ring in here again. Um, and so, um, you know, that it was incredibly exciting to be um, developing the methodologies, um, you know, defining this idea of industries of the future. What were the sectors of the economy that were just naturally going to be the winners if you drove a sustainable economy um, and overweighting those areas. So that's clean energy and mass transit systems and process control and energy efficiency and um, pollution cleanup technologies. You know, there was a whole raft of different companies and categories that we defined, which are really informed the idea of green investment to this day. And then the other thing we did was to say, well, you know, there's a whole lot of other sectors of the of industry like food retailing or um, what else, clothing. Um, and, you know, those industries aren't going to just disappear. So we've really got to encourage best of class performance and we've got to encourage um, companies to really um, up their game on, on green production systems. And so, you know, there was the kind of industries of the future idea and in parallel this best of class uh, investing idea. And those two things are still very, very present today. Absolutely. Um, so I think the other thing that was f really, I just feel so blessed to have been part of the community um, that made things happen was, you know, it was one thing to be running a fund in the UK, but we actually had an international fund as well. And so that took you into conversations with the United Nations, um, with the World Economic Forum, with um, lots of different uh, international groups um, in terms of getting them to tune into the role of finance in delivering sustainable investment as sustainable economic development. And I'm very proud to have written a very early piece on this with my colleague Mark Campanali um, at the time of the Earth Summit in 1992. Um, we wrote uh, a definitive chapter on the role of the capital markets in delivering sustainable um, economic development in a book that was published at the summit called Changing Course. Right. Uh, so, you know, it really, it, the sky was really the limit. And, um, you know, we did really great work, which is playing out to this day, for example, in you know, it was like, right, well, we need some more metrics to do this properly. Um, and there is no way to really understand the data coming from companies on, for example, their carbon emissions. So let's actually work to create an accounting standard so that we can really use the data and it can be meaningful between companies and also over time. And so that work, you know, has fed in and is now part of the um, greenhouse gas uh, protocol, which is accepted worldwide. Um, another example is there is the British Standard um, Programme, which you probably know, the BS series of 
different quality standards that exist for industry. And, you know, this wasn't genius. This was just about timing that they were looking to uh, explore how to um, uh, create British standards, which incidentally are now part of ISO, the International Standards Organization for Quality Assurance. And we really worked with them to help create an environmental management standard, which again is it's ISO 14000, the 14000 series, and that's running today. So, you know, it was just being in the right place at the right time. We were able to make a lot, a lot of things happen. Wow, this is really fundamental work, isn't it? It's the kind of foundations for so much of where we are today. Uh, exactly. Very yeah, exciting. Exactly. And, and you were involved in the Calvert Group with the uh, for 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 several decades, I think, uh, in, in SRI funds and so forth. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I mean that was, you know, having <laughs> been working for a fund management group in the UK, one had witnessed um, something of the dynamics of. Uh, investment boardrooms in the UK and then I was invited to join the Calvert board uh, which was a huge honour um, and the, it was absolutely fascinating the difference, the difference in culture and the difference in approach and you know to summarise it in top line terms um, the uh, American version was way more developed, um, uh, but based on rules as opposed to um, principles, whereas corporate governance at that time in the UK was much more principles-based and not um, really um, double-guessing management so much as just ensuring that certain principles were being followed, which has its advantages, but also has its disadvantages. Um, on the board of the uh, Calvert Funds, I felt way better informed uh, about what was really going on uh, within the company. And I think the other really striking difference was the um, board of Calvert at that time had huge ambition for the whole social investment area. And so it was a very dynamic part of the board role. Um, and there was a lot of work that went on alongside the research team of Calvert, which the board was involved in. And that, I think, has become more prevalent in the UK, but it certainly wasn't as prevalent at that time. Right, right. So a very different culture and uh, yeah. I guess bringing together different uh, ideas and that seems to be a very important element um, over time. And where are we today? It's been uh, several decades uh, from those right. early steps and um, there, there are so many different uh, investment vehicles, uh, sustainability indices, uh, organizations um, of investors uh, in, in, in different uh, ways, uh, focusing on different aspects of ESG and more broadly. Um, big question, but um, where, do you, where, where do you think we are today? Well, I, I think we're on an up cycle. 
which is fantastic. And we've certainly been in the doldrums between the 90s and here. Um, you know, 9-11 really kicked us into the long grass, I think in a very profound way. It set back the whole sustainable finance industry in, in very real ways. Um, because until 9-11, there was a sense in which we were really, really gaining the attention of more and more governments, more and more regulators, more normalizing this thinking into uh, international discourse. 9-11 comes along and suddenly the conversation changes completely and it's all about security and terrorism and, you know, we were knocked sideways. And then there's a double whammy. There was some pickup in the noughties, but, um, you know, the credit crunch again uh, just blew everything sideways and the, the sort of the whole austerity idea um, really kicking in and, um, you know, uh, balancing budgets and all of that. Um, and so... Uh, and you have to also remember that, you know, that coincides with the conversation, the Copenhagen disaster around trying to get a global agreement on climate. And um, that meant that uh, a, a lot of the wind had come out of the, the sales of green finance and people had lost faith in the world being able to do anything um, to combat climate change. And I would say that climate change has been a major driver of the whole green investment area. Um, uh, anyway, so it's taken until now, you know, and getting the Paris deal um, to really get things moving again. And I think if you then look to see what's happening, particularly in the energy fields and around um, electric vehicles and the energy storage, there's a very, very powerful story there. Um, you know, essentially, we've got a decoupling of um, investment in clean energy uh, from oil prices, you know, until really probably about 2014, you really only got major investment in, in um, renewable energies when the price of oil really went up. Well, that's changed. And investments in re renewable energy can stand on their own ground now, you know, because of the crash of the crashing costs of um, solar and wind in particular, and the rising uh, efficiencies and uh, lowering costs of battery technology, storage technologies. So that's a major, major driver of what's going on now, plus the uh, Paris Agreement and the Sustainable Development Goals. You've got, you know, the, the, the mojo is back in the international community, right? Um, and so, you know, there is more interest now in green finance and climate finance than I've ever seen before. Right. And I know, uh, well, there are many reports, but a recent report talking about $90 trillion in infrastructure over the next 15 years that needs to be replaced. Um, right. You know, just uh, mind boggling uh, figures and, uh, you know, figures of maybe doubling of the annual uh, spending on, on green infrastructure to whatever, six, seven 
trillion a year. These are very big sums of money, aren't they? They are. And, you know, the really good thing is that I, I, I think the message is truly getting through now that, you know, green isn't a nice to have. Green is actually fundamental to growing a stable, secure, um, you know, healthy economy. And it doesn't matter where you are in the development cycle that applies. And so I think that, you know, across the emerging world, more and more countries are waking up to the value of allocating, uh, you know, investment to green infrastructure as opposed to business as usual. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, you're a director of the Green Investment Bank. How has that been? There's, uh, again, very large sums of money have been uh, uh, invested. Um, uh, it looks like it's a great story. Um, how, how has that been? Uh, it's incredible what the bank has done. You know, it's only four years old. And it's in that time, it's committed two billion and mobilised a further ten billion from other sources into the UK green economy, in around eighty transactions. So you know, it's really, you know, any financial institution would be proud of that track record. You know, it's it's all very well being given a, a huge amount of money to deploy, but to deploy it into robust. Um, projects um, is is another challenge enti entirely, and so you know the bank is a fantastic model, and where it becomes super relevant is that um, every country. I'm sure you're familiar that the Paris Agreement is structured on every country making its commitment to uh, bringing down its carbon emissions in the way that's right for it as a country, right? So there's a diversity of approaches. But, you know, every country had to put in its plan of what it was going to do um, to Paris, okay? And we're now heading towards the, you know, the not just the ratification, we've got that, but actually the Paris Agreement coming into effect on the 4th of November. And it means that every country is expected to activate their plan. Well, if you look at those plans, some of them, you know, are last minute jobs and, you know, haven't had that much thought put into them. But a very good number are what you might call formative business plans. Okay, um, identifying the sorts of projects that that any particular country says that it feels it can do, and what becomes really interesting is that those formative business plans are not dissimilar to the consultancy reports that the government received in setting up the Green Investment Bank. Right, so you scroll back five or six years you get to not dissimilar documents to those that started the wheels moving on creating the Green Investment Bank. And then you scroll forward, and as I say, there's been some, you know, 12 billion in total put into the uh, green economy in the UK. And you start thinking that any country could think about doing this for themselves as well. There is a really exciting prospect that you know, no country has to wait now. Any country can take its um, climate plan, 
and start to turn it into investable project pipeline. And all it really needs is the right people around the table, um, the financiers with the policy people and the um, you know engineers to really get those projects moving. And the bank, the Green Investment Bank, is there as the most fantastic example of, of what can be in, achieved in such a short space of time. Uh, Fergal, I think the other thing that's really interesting about the bank is that you know, it's done a really good job, and I've worked very closely with the team on this, on, in terms of its accountability for um, the environmental impacts of its operations and its projects. And again, that's another really important precedent that it's set, that, you know, unlike the 70s, when there was a big transfer of investment into the emerging world, which essentially disappeared into Swiss bank accounts. I, I really believe that this time round, there's going to be a lot more accountability and processes to make sure that investments uh, are spent wisely and that, you know, that it's not a corruption fest. It really is about making the right things happen in countries across the world. Right. right. That's very exciting. And it's been, I guess, key to, you know, London's uh, status as well as the centre of green finance. Um, yeah. um, I, I suppose an important question is about to what degree the capital has been, I guess, new capital that maybe other commercial lenders wouldn't necessarily already provide. How would one measure that or think about that? Well, I think one of the problems we have at the moment is that um, there is still... Um, we need to lift the bar on understanding around the different financing options that are available for any country, okay? And there is, um, in a way, a bit of historic baggage around that, um, you know, all the money has to come from the north to redress the wrongs to the south, right? And there is an element of that. There's no getting away from that, in particularly in terms of helping to fund adaptation projects, which are never going to make any money, right? But there are a whole lot of other bits of climate investment plans, like the clean energy um, uh, aspect, which all countries flag as something that they are intent on doing, where so long as um, the proposals are structured right, there's nothing to stop um, countries going out and raising money from the local or international capital markets right now, right? And there are very large uh, kind of, you know, in, uh, asset owners out there who are interested to invest that way so long as there are fair assurances um, around country risk, etc., etc., and this is this is where the experience of deal makers needs to come together with treasuries or ministries of finance and with the um, operation operators who will actually put the kit in the ground, right? And it's not rocket science. We just need to get the right people um, around tables to make sure that projects are de-risked appropriately for big institutional investors to come in and, and, and back. 
right? And and that's a key aspect of what you'd say that the Green Investment Bank has been doing. Absolutely. Right. I mean, you know, before GIB came along, offshore wind was basically stuck in this country because a number of investments had been made into offshore wind uh, projects, but there was no recycling of that capital into new ones. And the Green Investment Bank was able to come along and really unlock the stuckness and get um, investments moving again in that particular uh, direction. And another example that Green Investment Bank's done brilliantly is to recognize the low-hanging fruit of um, switching out the highly energy-intensive street lighting that still exists across much of the country, right? Um, and um, getting it switched into LEDs. And, you know, that wasn't happening because, frankly, it was in the too complicated, too difficult, too many moving parts and contracts bucket of the finance directors of local authorities or, um, you know, health authorities or whomever. And Green Investment Bank was able to come along and say, look, we can just take this problem off your desk and sort it out for you. And they've done that to brilliant effect for Glasgow and other places. That's great. That's great. And looking forward, Tessa, COP22 on the horizon. Um, COP21 certainly uh, uh, surpassed, uh, I think, many people's expectations and is, is a, a real uh, benchmark, I think. Uh, many people, uh, most people... Uh, Sorry, that wasn't very well put. Um, uh, so let me say that again. Uh, so uh, Tessa, COP22 on the horizon. Uh, I think COP21 certainly surpassed uh, many people's expectations. What do you hope for for COP22? Uh, can it top again? Can it surpass uh, COP21? What would be a, a good set of results, would you expect? Well, the result that I'm really, really looking for is that we get various models becoming very um, evident of how the financing is beginning to roll. And there are some examples already, but there could be way more, and there need to be more roadmaps for countries to know what to do. And, you know, it's quite appropriate because Marrakesh, where the COP is happening, is North, one of North America's largest marketplaces, right? So where better to get this show on the road than in the marketplace of Marrakesh that, um, you know, we really get a lot of deals um, starting at least, as I say, treasuries and ministries of uh, finance really understanding how they're going to start to uh, turn their climate plans into investable project pipeline. Right. So I'm not sure. What, what, what do you mean in terms of the, uh, you're saying the different prototypes, different ways uh, the finance can be structured? Yeah. Well, you know, there are, there, there are, you know, projects already being financed, right? But we need more evidence of that. And funnily enough, one of the things that I'm working on and we will have launched by COP is a blog that... Um, will really talk about the different financing possibilities and what kind of financing, what type of project and the experiences that different people are having, just to lift the bar on understanding of, of what's out there and what's available. 
Um, and, you know, that's called ndci.global as, as a blog. And, you know, is there to help people who are interested and, in, you know, want to do things in this area. Um, but, you know, it ranges from how are we going to um, uh, build on the work of, for example, um, uh, uh, the Nature Conservancy in the US that has done some really amazing work on debt for nature swaps so that you actually have a way in which you help countries um, pull down their debt and also protect um, ecosystems, whether it's barrier coastal reefs, mangrove swamps, or um, forestry, um, you know, that, that's a phenomenal example that needs to be better understood. Um, and then you've got, you know, the different models that have really meant that uh, renewable energy has exploded, solar and wind in some countries. And, you know, what do um, uh, uh, governments need to understand around um, electricity reforms that can allow the same things to happen in their own country. Right, right. Very, very interesting. Uh, cutting edge uh, uh, ideas, I think. Uh, very exciting. Just one question about carbon pricing. I just wonder what your thoughts on that. It seems to be something that uh, I guess some people were hoping for more on COP21. Uh, others, uh, more probably pragmatic, said <laughs> had lower expectations. It seems to be something that... Uh, you know, could have a dramatic effect, um, and yet it's 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 moving along slowly. What, what's your thoughts on that? I think we'll get it in the end, but I I think that it, to put all your eggs in the carbon pricing basket is a mistake. Um, it will happen in its own at its own pace because it's a highly um, you know, challenging area for some countries. So what you're going to get is internal carbon pricing occurring in some places. It is already yes, shadow okay. pricing, yes. and 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 so you know it, the 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 kind of consensus will build around that over time. Um, as important because we've got the great news story that solar and wind are competitive with other energy generation options, right? It's, you know, we can get a long way by just helping countries make the right decisions around those technologies in terms of, um, you know, getting their energy supply right. Um, and I guess that's what I'm most focused on alongside you know, investments to bring down the carbon emissions from waste. You know, take a country like India, for example. You know, the the human benefits of sorting out the appalling waste problems that exist in India, you know, it's not just about carbon. It plays right into the health goals of the SDGs um, to, to crack investment in those areas as well. And that is doable, you know, either through guarantee loan type products or other other investments like that. You know, we we can really make a lot happen if we if we start to get uh, a bit joined up in our thinking about the financing. 
Right, right. Excellent, excellent. Um, it's been a fascinating uh, conversation. Um, I guess one last question, maybe. Um, I mean, there's a huge amount of activity. There is a huge amount of progress, um, a lot of investment. Yet, I know some uh, feel that the, the pace of change that will be required is 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 even uh, greater and you know in order to really uh keep the hit the targets uh for the sdgs but for cop 21 um that really uh the pace is would need to be blistering um are, are you optimistic that we're going to uh <clears throat> get there well i'm more optimistic than i was i mean you know when you've been sort of working in this field for a long time I, you know, it was easy to burst into tears and feel utterly depressed four or five years ago, right? Because the data was still there. And compared to then and now, it really, really feels as though there's unstoppable momentum. And so, uh, you know, yes, we've got to get the divestment movement has to carry on hollering and, you know, forcing the hand of the fossil fuel world. You know, all these things have to happen. We, there's no room for let up. But I feel more optimistic than I've felt in a long while. Great. Now, I just maybe ask you about uh, COP22 and then we can just take it from there. Right. Um, well, I, you know, what what was great, and I think, um, you know, if you don't go to the cops, it's easy to overlook this, is that it is a, the most extraordinary gathering um, in that, uh, you know, nothing else happens annually which involves so many different parts of government. They're not all there, of course, but, you know, there are people from health authorities and education and security and the environment and from the ministries of economy. You know, that, that kind of mixture, that spectrum um, comes in the delegations that come to COP. And essentially almost every country in the world comes to the cops in some shape or form okay plus you've got the whole amazing uh representation from business plus from civil society plus all the different uh global organizations that have an interest in what's happening on climate so you know and that's across science and academia and policy and i mean it is the most extraordinary occasion and, and, you know, as I say, I don't think anything like this happens on any other topic annually. Right. And therefore, you know, there is something very valuable not to lose there. But I think the other and the flip side from our perspective of we want to get the NDCs financed is that um, the way the whole thing is structured needs to evolve so that there can be more collaboration, more deal-making, more um, networking of the right people and, and kind of creation of the right situations so you bring in more finance um, into the conversation to help more things happen. Okay, so I, I, I just say that about COP overall. Um, right, right. Uh, what, what, does that, what does that mean? You say more deal making. Concretely, what would you, you know, well, in future you know, cops? You could, you could imagine 
for example, just like happens in the angel investing area, that uh, there are moments during the day when um, governments could come, perhaps in collaboration with local civil society partners and some local uh, finance partners, and say, we want to do X, Y, or Z, and that they can have a high confidence level that there will be um, in a room with a, a group of the multilateral, multilateral development banks, the development finance people, but also people from international finance who can hear what kind of uh, proposals are looking for cash, right? And and you could really on the other the flip side is you could imagine workshops where people are working on financing mass transit systems for example where they can meet their own kind and really um, drill down on swapping notes and swapping experiences about how to deal with challenges that um, you know, particular individuals are finding in, in terms of putting a complex deal together. Right, because it, it, that stage now where money on the table and commitments it, is, it, is, has become very important. Absolutely. And, you know, the good news was that there were a lot, a lot of events going on in Marrakesh, which were focused on NDC financing and on the conversation around how do the NDCs start to convert into climate investment plans. And so that's really good news. That was part of the whole agenda that we were pushing for in Paris. And it's really great to see that locking in in the way people are talking about what next for the NDCs. That sounds great. Now, clearly, uh, the, it was overshadowed I, by by recent political events, and I'm just wondering um, how the mood uh, was, bearing in mind uh, right. President-elect uh, Trump's view on 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 climate change and some right. of the statements he's made. So, I'd be interested in getting your thoughts on, you know, how important well, what's happened recently in America, some of the. Uh, legal, you know, uh, backdrop, and and also just the the uh, bringing together everybody at the table in you know COP twenty one, and if 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 the US was to step back in any way from that commitment, and more generally to step back from you know regulations on the environment and climate change. Well, obviously, it's not what one wanted, um, and you know, I think that. It's very easy to say these things in a campaign. It's far more difficult to put things into effect. Obviously, you know, he has come in with a resounding success in the Senate and, um, you know, both houses. So, um, you know, America's in for a very challenging time, but there are incredibly powerful groups at the city level, at the grassroots level, uh, at the national policy level, um, so it's not going to be uh, an easy ride for Trump if he comes in wanting to undermine the progress and the uh, precedents that have been set by both Republicans and Democrats over the last, um, uh, you know, 50, 60 years. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't think it's going to be a slam dunk by any means. And if we go back to the actual Paris Agreement, the thing to understand is that the way it's structured 
means that it's far less vulnerable to whomever's in the White House. It is, you know, uh, uh, an agreement where every country has submitted their own plan. And the fact that you have China already saying um, that, you know, in terms of their agreements and arrangements with America, you know, climate has to absolutely be part of the ongoing conversation. Um, you know, there are lots of reasons to believe that this is going to be a test for the international community, but there is very deep commitment across many parts of the world to making the Paris Agreement a success. And that's because they're feeling the costs and the impacts of climate change already. Right, right. And and uh, so, I mean, on one level, there is that uh, people talking about the possibility that other people may step back or that it's possibly just slow down people's commitment uh, or putting into action their commitment um, to, to change. Right. And so I think, you know, who's to say? Only history will tell us what happened. And, you know, no one yes, is, yes. is, anyone dares really predict the yes. future with with great authority. But I think the one thing, the other thing that gives me a lot of confidence is not only the structure of the Paris Agreement itself that makes it very resilient, um, but also um, it's the fact that um, the the um, trends or the pressures are moving more and more from the political realm into the economic realm. And so you saw the um, Inter International Energy Agency, IEA, um, recalibrating its forecast for renewable energy and sharing the news that investment in, re in, in renewable energy um, was more than in coal for the first time in 2015 and now accounts for, you know, a massive part of the electricity piece um, in terms of the uh, global energy use. And, um, you know, you've got the fact that renewable energy uh, investment is decoupling from the price of oil, i.e. it's not dependent on oil prices being high to happen anymore. And you've got some of the cheapest energy generation now coming on stream, which is from solar or wind, right? So, you know, these are forces plus what's happening in the storage area, plus what's happening in the EV area, which are unstoppable. If you've driven an, an EV vehicle um, and sort of jumped over the fence in terms of getting over, um, you know, range anxiety, you understand that it's just a much nicer vehicle to drive. And so why would you want to go back to a dirty filling in, you know, hands all smelly with diesel or petrol? Why do you want to go back to that? Um, so, you know, it's just like with the phone and other technologies where, you know, you've seen very disruptive things happen to establish markets over a very short space of time. Right. That's very interesting. I, and finally, then, I suppose it does uh, raise the question of how much and, and the great work that has been achieved uh, in the US, particularly um, in recent years under uh, President Obama's uh, tutelage. Right. Well, he's got the relationships with the rest of the world, right? You know, they don't suddenly end overnight. 
And he's already said he's going to work on climate action post his presidency. And so I, I think he's going to be an incredibly important, trusted figure globally for helping countries, helping presidents and prime ministers in other parts of the world navigate what happens, um, you know, what comes out of the US over the next four years. Excellent. So guarded optimism then for the future. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. And, and uh, a call out for uh civic civil society and uh for corporations and for others to work together South yeah America definitely it's a country like no other oh dear, what's that voice there. behind you <laughs> what happened there um I, I, I just cut myself in there uh well thank you thank you very much you are more optimistic <laughs> than uh than i am but i don't i'm sitting a long way away and, and not so closely uh uh, but it's that momentum you're talking about, isn't it, really? That is well, and I think it's one of the, we're in this place, Fagel, where, you know, if you if you just hopeless, well, then it will be hopeless. We have got so much to play for right now. And, you know, there are some really powerful forces on the side of good now. You know, the whole, whole RE100 group of corporations who are committing to 100% renewable energy, right? That's, that's an incredibly powerful force in the U.S. economy, let alone the global economy. Right, right. Because I saw the, uh, the IEA look at the figures and if, if they don't hit the... Uh, well, it's less that they don't hit the COP21 targets, but if nothing happens, that carbon emissions increase by 36%, um, right. which is well, uh, by 2040, know, so which is like three. That, you know. I think we've got a, a very interesting thing where this is not just about fear, there is a fear and greed, which is what's always driven humanity. And there are enough people in business who now see the green light of how to actually make money in a good way to make the right things happen. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Tessa, for taking the time today to speak to the sustainability agenda. That's been uh, very, very uh, interesting. And I wish you the very best of uh, success with your work and at COP22. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.